This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Welcome to this week's episode of the Race to Value, the leading podcast in value-based care transformation. This week, we're going to have an in-depth discussion on the new ACO REACH model, analyzing the technical specifics of this new payment model, and discussing the strategic implications for how this will impact your healthcare organization and its value journey. On February 24th, 2022, the CMS Innovation Center released the details on this new payment model, ACO REACH. ACO REACH represents a series of changes made to global and professional direct contracting or direct contracting or GPDC to respond to criticisms faced by that program. ACO REACH adds in exciting new components aimed at closing health equity gaps in keeping with the Innovation Center's 10-year plan released late in 2021, which we discussed with CMMI Director Liz Fowler on a recent episode of The Race to Value. Joining us this week, we have two leading strategists in value-based care from Lumeris. We have Rick Goddard, Vice President of Strategy and Commercialization, and we have Joseph Satorius, Senior Vice President, Accountable Care Programs and Strategic Operations. They come to us from Lumeris, an accountable care delivery innovation company that enables health systems to deliver value-based care through advanced technology, risk management, and outcome-based managed services. If you want to learn more about the ACO REACH model after listening to this podcast episode, make sure to download the intelligence brief that we wrote in partnership with Lumeris, which is also being released this week from the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. This resource will provide you with everything you need to know about the new payment model with an analysis of strategic implications that you will find nowhere else. It can be downloaded at www.accountablecarelc.com. Well, Rick, Joe, welcome to the Race to Value. It's so great to have you on the show this week. I'm really excited about our discussion about ACO Reach. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks for having us, guys. Well, guys, as we get started, before we get into the the specifics about this exciting new payment model and an opportunity for organizations advancing into value, I wanted to learn and share with our listeners a little bit more about your background. Would you mind giving a brief intro as we start our discussion today? Absolutely. Joe Satorius, 
Senior Vice President, Accountable Care Programs and Strategic Operations with Lumeris, and in, in this capacity, lead critical partnerships with our provider partners regarding their participation in innovative programs. As a part of that, I'm currently engaged with a number of our providers uh, and partners that are participating in the current DC program, soon transitioning into the ACO REACH model in 23. Hey, everyone. Great to talk with everybody again. And thanks, Daniel and Eric, for having me on, and Joe as well. For those that uh, caught the previous episode, I'm Rick Goddard. I am the Vice President of Strategy and Commercialization at Lumeris. I oversee all commercialization aspects, product marketing for our business. My roles encompasses strategic alliances and corporate development. Thanks for having me on. Well, gentlemen, as we start our conversation today, I wanted to get your unique perspective on some of the APM changes and this movement to value-based care as it's associated with the announcement of ACO REACH. And this has been months in the making. I mean, we've been in this intense political debate that culminated on February 24th when CMS revealed the highly anticipated fate of the Innovation Center's direct contracting model options, announcing a complete redesign of the Global Professional Direct Contracting Model, or GPDC, and they permanently canceled the, the GEO direct contracting option. They revamped and rebranded GPDC, and it's now called the Accountable Care Organization Realizing Equity, Access, and Community Health, or ACO REACH. And it aims to better reflect the agency's vision and the administration's priorities for system transformation. And they've incorporated stakeholder feedback and, and all of that has led to them in what many are seeing as an alleviation of some of the concerns that the GBDC critics had while also maintaining a lot of the core features of the model. And it builds on the momentum in this accountable care movement. And Rick, I know when the direct contracting model was initially announced back in January of last year, I mean, you referenced this in your earlier comments, but, you know, we had you on the podcast. It had such an enthusiastic response. It's great to have you on. And at the time, you discussed how direct contracting is really an ideal model to drive value transformation, and it was attractive to a lot of the next-gen ACOs and other ACOs that were advancing in their level of risk maturity and value-based readiness. So now that you've both had a chance to review the differences between GPDC and ACO REACH, I wanted to know if you're still optimistic that this payment model in its newly designed form will continue to advance the value agenda by moving ACOs into full risk models and incentivize improved patient outcomes and lower costs. I do. I think we've gotten to a point where we've seen the collective value across both the political spectrum and uh, the view from the consumer and recognizing that value shouldn't go away. There's been a renewed debate that's allowed us to think through what are the value points that are good for it and what are the, some of the things that need reinforcement. And this community of folks that are Regular listeners, in addition to those that have been driving this for the last couple decades, have a renewed energy to drive value to our communities. This program and its newly revealed focus, I think Joe and I would agree, it is a net positive future for those that are currently participating under direct contracting and those that will participate in 23 under ACO REACH. Joe, what are you at? Yeah, I would agree. The announcement that came out a couple of weeks ago, I think we interpret certainly as a firm commitment by CMS and, and now the Biden administration 
right, to, to really the promising potential of value-based care and, and really the purpose of CMMI. And you know, reading the, some of the counter-arguments that are out there, there's one thing I think that everyone agrees on, which is the importance of Medicare for the health and well-being of American seniors. And there's no doubt, certainly from our perspective, that value-based care is not only the best way to protect the future of Medicare you know, by addressing an unsustainable fee-for-service model that has become outdated in our modern healthcare system, but also the best way to deliver better and more effective health outcomes for all Medicare beneficiaries. And I think seeing CMS re-anchor to its goal for all Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries to be in a care relationship with accountability for quality and total cost of care by 2030, you know, re-anchor to that goal and then re-anchor to this program as a primary tool for achieving that goal was a great signal for proponents of value-based care and uh, and really a great outcome, I think, for, for the Medicare program in general. And the core tenets of this program remain. I mean, the, the opportunity for physicians and providers that are ready to assume greater risks by managing the value and outcomes over just, you know, volume of services, the opportunity provided by this model to succeed, I think, is uh, is incredible and very much still serves as a model that will advance and drive mindshare, right, in many of these uh, organizations around value-based care. Thanks for those comments. I appreciate the start of this conversation and look forward to the depth that we're going to get into with you guys. According to CMS, the ACO REACH model aims to attract more provider-led organizations to join the model. We're talking about former next-gen participants, also ACOs, MSSP ACOs who are interested in deepening their participation in Medicare risk arrangements, and even provider entities that are new to these initiatives. CMS is planning to allow some entities who are new to CMMI initiatives to participate in ACO REACH, but the model applicants and participants will be subject to more scrutiny and oversight than participants in GPDC. This will include enhanced screening of applicants to get better insight into financial interests and affiliations, as well as information on relevant direct patient care experience, particularly experience with underserved communities. Specifically during the application process, applicants will be asked to describe their experience furnishing care to underserved populations and list the specific populations they've that they have experience caring for. Additionally, potential participants will need to describe the metrics they use to identify inequities in their population and processes for improving identified disparities. Joe, I'm hoping that you can start us off and provide perspective on CMS's newly refined eligibility criteria, why that matters when it comes to advancing health equity, promoting provider leadership and engagement, and enhancing beneficiary protections. And how will the design of ACL reach improve governance structures and what changes, if any, will be made to participant types between this model and the former GPDC model? Sure. Yeah, thanks for the question. You know, as you pointed out, it's clear CMS wants these value-based care initiatives and ACOs through this program to have significant provider engagement and involvement. And it has seemingly structured this in a way that recognizes that private capital can can provide much needed financing for population health tools, technology, and solutions, but CMS has really structured the REACH program in a way that allows for partnerships with financing sources, but ultimately puts providers, clinicians, and you know population health organizations in the driver's seat in terms of driving the CMS vision for care coordination, design, you know, integrated person-centered care and affordability that really providers and clinicians are driving that part of, of the model. 
the new ACO reach requirement is for a 75% board representation from participating providers. Basically, your participating providers now represent 75% of the ACO board, along with a required representation by a Medicare beneficiary and consumer advocate, which is not a new requirement. But the new requirement is that those positions have been split. Previously, it could be the same person. And now CMS wants to see actually a a Medicare beneficiary representation and a separate consumer uh, board seat representation. Essentially, CMS is is ensuring that control of these ACOs is is really provider-driven. You know, I think uh, we expect CMS to favor applicants that appear best positioned based on historical performance and leadership. You referenced some of the questions that CMS is asking about in terms of historical performance. How have entities engaged in addressing social disparities? How have they partnered with community organizations in their community to address barriers and access to health care? And don't expect that organizations need to be experts in this area, I think you know that's that's part of what CMS is trying to accomplish with this model is is driving more organizations to get engaged in addressing health equity and social disparities. But I do expect CMS will want organizations to demonstrate some type of experience or commitment or understanding of the types of initiatives that are really required to effectively get into underserved and get access to underserved, historically underserved beneficiaries and provide the much needed care coordination that has been you know, lacking in some of these health deserts. And so having sort of examples or proof points or demonstrating an understanding of the type of relationships that may need to be built with community organizations, you know, nonprofits, having an understanding and demonstrating an understanding of the type of analytics and demographic information that is useful for assessing and bringing better care to those communities, I think is is the type of commitment and historical experience that CMS will be looking for. Well, Rick, during last year's podcast discussion, one in which we compared MSSP to GPDC, we talked a lot about how direct contracting was using some of the best elements of prior APMs and value-based care initiatives, and it offered enhanced benefits for no additional costs while improving access to accountable care for Medicare beneficiaries that are really suffering from the fee-for-service payment system that, as we know, provides little coordinated or preventative care. And we went into great depth about how direct contracting used many of the same operating levers as Medicare Advantage, such as beneficiary engagement incentives, benefit enhancements, and pass-through of benefits to preferred providers. And with fully capitated options and also partial capitation with MA, those DCEs were responsible for claims payments as well as medical management. And it certainly seems that like the new ACO reach model continues on with this same structure for capitation. I mean, the model retains a lot of the same participation options as GPDC. It has two tracks, professional and global. And the capitation options outlined in GPDC have also been carried over to the REACH model. You have the total care capitation TCC, primary care capitation PCC, and the PCC plus, which is the advanced payment option. Can you provide, Rick, an overview of the payment model options by model track and share some of your insights just generally on on capitation? I mean, what should provider organizations be considering as they evaluate the payment model and the risk sharing attributes of this new ACO reach program? 
Yeah, Eric, really good observations of, of the model's progression from uh, direct contracting to ECO reach. I'll address a few, I guess, summaries now of, of the model track and I guess what uh, has changed. But if you look at the ACO reach model, I, I think it, if you look at it very, you know, from a high end basis, this is a really bipartisan change because many of the existing bones of the direct contracting methodology remained. And that shows that there was a lot of good things that um, both parties could take into account as they built the ACO reach model to evolve it. So as you uh, observed, the ACO reach model will retain the same participation options as GPDC with the two tracks in professional and global. So the professional track includes a lower risk sharing option, is one, in fact, with ACOs accountable for 50% of losses or eligible to 50% of the savings, but decrease in percent share going to the provider as corridors of that gain or loss grow to greater deviance from the benchmark consistent with DC. Now, ACOs in this track only have one option for payment, which is primary care capitation, which I'll get into in a second, otherwise acronymed as PCC, as we like to do in healthcare acronym. And as you look at the current participants in this, which there's 99 of them in the direct contracting 2022 participant list, which includes both 2021 and 2022 cohorts, notably only 27% of current participation of the participants chose the professional track. The other track, which remains, is the global track, which requires global risk sharing, right? With ACOs accountable for 100% of the losses and eligible for 100% of the savings, which are on the hook for those 100% first dollar earnings losses until the risk corridor protections enter at 25% of the benchmark. ACOs in this track can choose between PCC and total care capitation compared to professional, which only allows you primary care capitation. And a majority of the market chose global at 73% of current participants. This signals that the market has paid attention to the financial opportunity and the real value that comes when you're willing to take skin in the game with downside risk to be able to acquire a larger upside. In addition, the global track requires a discount to the benchmark to lock in actuarial savings for Medicare for managing the program. However, Medicare recognized we want to get more participants to join the model and actively be able to manage the benchmark financially. But it makes sense to balance both Medicare savings and provider-led savings to ensure there is longevity through the end of the pilot program in 2026. So CMS, what they did is they reduced the discount rate for global ACOs to 3% in 2024 and 3.5% in 2025 and 2026. Comparatively, in direct contracting from 4% in 2024 and 5% in 25 and 26. So a, a notable positive when it comes to the economic model. Now for capitation options, they remain. There's three payment options outlined in GPDC that have also been carried over to the REACH model, which is total care capitation, acronymed as TCC, primary care capitation as PCC, and the opportunity to combine PCC with a component called the advanced payment option, which is only available under that PCC mechanism. So TCC is only available to global participants. So under TCC, 100% of Medicare Part A and Part B services furnished to aligned beneficiaries are reimbursed through a per beneficiary per month, which is also termed as PVPM, as I'll, I'll mention, payments. And participant providers are required to take 100% reduction to claims under TCC, where preferred providers can choose to have their claims anywhere between 1% and 100%. 
to receive capitated payments commensurate with this reduction. Now, the technical and strategic capabilities with TCC are enormous and have a lot of creativity that can go into it as intended design by both DC and uh, ACR reach creators. For one, if you curate the network effectively, so you could key to host up a, a preferred provider to take a reduction in fee-for-service, and you could do a bunch of creative ways to pay them downstream since CMS allows you to offer some creative ways to contract downstream. By you could either paying pass through fee-for-service to these organizations at a portion or more of their original fee-for-service payment and apply bonus targets to ensure they meet quality requirements. So you have the ability to create these behavioral economics to create the appropriate incentives for your connected network to coordinate care effectively and drive appropriate outcomes. Another way you could pay is you could pay capitation to a facility or a hospital. So with 27% of current DCs participating in TCC, I, I still consider it a 300 level course when driving effective processing of these, the technical components required to deliver TCC downstream, which is delivery of a post-adjudicated claims processing focus and aligning the network with effective, and I dare it, not confusing incentives. The second track, primary care capitation, ACOs in both the global and professional tracks may elect to receive payments through this PCC mechanism. And ACOs electing PCC are required to reduce a portion of their primary care claims, which is essentially by a set of CPT codes that are uh, evaluation and management codes. And instead of receiving a PBPM payment to furnish those primary care services to beneficiaries. So the participation in PCC is optional for preferred providers. So the extended network doesn't have to participate, but the participant list does. And for those that chose PCC only, about 30% of current DCCs chose this option. The opportunity to take this advanced payment option in addition to PCC, this is where there is an opportunity to, to have a portion of their non-primary care claims be utilized through this APO. This PBM payment represents between one and 100% as determined by the provider of non-primary care fee-for-service claims that will be reconciled against actual spending at the end of the performance year. This option allows providers to take advantage of this predictable upfront spending without committing to the global capitation that comes within total care capitation. Namely, so those that chose PCC plus APO, 42% of current DCs chose to include APO in addition to their PCC participation. And then you asked, essentially, I think I heard, what are the risk of sharing attributes of the new ACU REACH program and what should they consider as they evaluate the payment model? I think it's really important for your listeners to consider your community, your existing readiness, your risk appetite, your risk options to mitigate risk, your network, your economic opportunity, and the partners at your disposal. The market is ripe with opportunity to drive high quality and effective outcomes. So consider many of the strategies we've embedded here in the podcast and, and in the co-release white paper. Rick, I want to move us toward talking about the process for setting the benchmark. I mean, this helps to determine the size of, of capitated payments, as well as the magnitude of potential shared savings or losses earned by ACOs. And it's not significantly changed from GPDC. However, CMS has made some methodological changes with ACO REACH that, where they've added a new payment adjustment to support ACOs who provide care for a larger share of underserved populations. This health equity adjustment occurs as a post-baseline adjustment that takes place after baseline benchmark determination 
regional adjustments made for geography and risk adjustment. And we'll talk about risk adjustment a little later in the interview, but first, let's talk about this change in benchmarking methodology associated with the health equity adjustment. This change was enacted by CMS because data suggests that participation in value-based care models by providers who treat underserved communities and the subsequent outcomes for those populations has been unsatisfactory. Contributing to this problem is the fact that some populations are more apt to forego care relative to their needs, which leads to spending that's lower than is actually necessary to properly care for these populations. This historical spending is used to calculate artificially low benchmarks, which make it more difficult for providers caring for these patients to earn savings in shared risk models. Can you talk about this new change to benchmarking methodology in the ACL REACH model and how will this better address health inequities? And for those provider organizations out there considering this new variable, how should they think about modifying their ACL strategy to ensure continued success as they progress in Medicare risk? And finally, how does the strong emphasis that ACL REACH places on voluntary alignment as an attribution mechanism impact ACL strategy when it comes to optimizing benchmark opportunities? So first, I'm very appreciative of the work that the CMMI strategic plan translated to a home and a payment model. I think this was long overdue in a payment model. We at Lumeris are excited to share that we find it both positive that this model provides greater and more equitable access to underserved communities, but it also provides an opportunistic economic opportunity for those that started or are well intended to drive toward a focus of the underserved communities via this model. Okay, so the technicals. Starting in performance year 23, CMS will apply an adjustment to increase the benchmark for ACOs serving higher proportions of underserved beneficiaries. So most ACOs will be impacted marginally by this adjustment based on CMS simulations of this policy. So those that saw some of those simulation and projections, they determined it within plus or minus 0.2% impact on the total performance year benchmark. And research indicated that underserved communities have lower healthcare spending overall relative to their healthcare needs. So a variety of factors to contribute to the underuse or underprovision of care, including inequities related to geographic and socioeconomic variation was considered. And these findings indicate that because benchmarks in the ACO reach model are set in part on historical spending and both specific to the ACO and specific to the county in which the beneficiary resides, the benchmarks for the ACO that serve higher proportions of underserved communities may set blow levels below the beneficiary of needs. So this new upward adjustment to the benchmark is a necessary step towards removing the disincentive for, I wouldn't say for DCEs, but for former ACOs to serve underserved communities in a manner that reflects their health needs. And why I call out DCEs, and I'll get that to in a second, is this seemingly was the first program that really created a lot of the levers to ensure folks in underserved communities were generated, do their due focus, and even better, the focus is now within ACO reach. So let's get to the benchmark adjustment methodology. So I know CMS, as they said in the paper, will identify underserved beneficiaries using a composite measure that incorporates a combination of the first being the area deprivation index, which essentially is a percentile score from one to 100 developed by University of Wisconsin-Madison researchers. And dual, and also the second being dual Medicaid status. So Medicare only versus full or partial dual eligibility. And so CMS will calculate the measure by starting with the area deprivation index or ADI 
for a given beneficiary census block group of residents, and that's scored from zero to 99 based on per the percentile relative to the nation, and applying a 25 point increase to the score for duly eligible beneficiaries. So for example, a duly eligible beneficiary residing in a census block group with an ADI in the 75th percentile would receive a score of 75 plus 25 for a total of 100. CMS will then stratify all those beneficiaries based on that composite measure that was just identified in the example and identify the top percentile that would get the upward adjustment, which encompasses a $30 PBPM adjustment to the benchmark, and the bottom five deciles for a downward adjustment, which is essentially the bottom 50%, would be at a downward adjustment of 60 per beneficiary per month. So again, that estimate that would impact roughly 0.2% on average of what either up or down for a given ACO reach. You asked for provider organizations considering this new variable, how they should consider modifying their strategy. Well, as I mentioned, I think those that evaluated direct contracting in the past would already be on the right path already via analysis. And so where we talked via analysis with one of our partners, Care Journey, we found that the direct contracting program effectively provided higher value to underserved population than any other Medicare ACO in the past. The ability to provide broader access points to these communities, coupled with telehealth and other value levers provided, in addition to the value of the benchmark for newly aligned beneficiaries, it drove DCs toward this strategy. Now with ACO reach, it solidifies it even further. It focuses these ACOs with financial levers and plans to execute that strategy. I don't think DCs to reach ACOs are that, are that far behind for those that are already in the program. However, consider further programs locally with community partners and establish appropriate routes to provide access to care for underserved beneficiaries. That will be key. And there will be several partnerships in those communities today, in addition to the technology to drive high quality and economic impact for those to get moving on this immediately. And ability to improve access and care to underserved populations in the community. And for example, a health system that's really already invested in looking to grow access to care and provide better local drive to the broader community, it really has a great opportunity to enhance their focus already on improving brand and loyalty to providers and beneficiaries slash customers across their communities. What a great opportunity to work with this program to have a first-to-market competitive advantage of an active program driving towards this. Just wanted to point that out at the end. Well, I wanted to take our conversation now to risk adjustment, and obviously that's been well discussed in evaluation of CMMI payment models. And Joe, I, I wanted to engage you on this and discuss the implications of benchmark methodology and risk adjustment on the ACO reach model specifically. And you know, during this political debate that we've had over these last few months, critics of direct contracting suggested that DCEs are engaging in aggressive diagnostic upcoding and miscategorizing of patients to qualify for higher risk-adjusted payments. But in all actuality, DCEs were subject to multiple coding limitations and direct contracting risk adjustment was not undermined by some of the more complicated regulations and litigation that, limited, that limit government action on miscoding in the Medicare Advantage program. And while much of the risk adjustment methodology will in fact be carried over from GPDC in response to stakeholder concerns of risk score gaming, there have been two additional protections 
against inappropriate risk score increases that have been added to the ACO REACH model, which began in performance year 2024. You have one, which is the static reference year population, and then two, you have the demographic adjustments. And the first methodology change under REACH will aim to slow down risk score growth by using a static reference year population for the entire performance period. And that second change that I mentioned will offset the change to the reference population by allowing for a more accurate assessment of risk. And if necessitated, risk score growth higher than the statutory 3%. I know that's a lot of technical detail, but I wanted to see if you could help translate this and maybe discuss also some of the expressed concerns about risk score gaming that have been expressed during the political debate of GPDC and and how did that influence the model design of ACO reach and and ultimately with all these additional modifications that bring about these additional protections is this the right thing to safeguard against some of these inappropriate risk score increases that many are concerned about yeah thanks Eric and as you pointed out this program in its existing state, in the direct contracting current state, is already designed with guardrails, many of which, you know, to, to a large degree, accomplished what the sort of counter arguments were pointing out, which is, you know, there's too much focus on pure revenue side play risk adjustment, there's overcoding. And so this program came with baked in guardrails to protect against that. So CMS has really designed this program to ensure surplus is ultimately generated by improved care coordination and delivery, driving improved economic outcomes with the right levers, care coordination, management of chronic conditions, reduced unnecessary admits, things like that. And, and risk score is an important component of that because obviously it helps capture the accurate risk and health status of each beneficiary, um, which is important for providers and success in the program, that risk is you know accurately and appropriately captured and coded. So CMS is really trying to guard against, and it's doing so effectively in this program, is strategies or entrants whose sole strategy may be based on, you know, better coding and not pulling some of the other value-based levers. And they're trying to make it harder to succeed in this model if you don't have a real value-based care strategy. And so to hit some of the technical components, under the existing direct contracting model, some of the guardrails or, or really the guardrails that are in place is first there's a cap. So it is a a 3% cap on risk adjustment, and that's an upside and downside cap. And it's relative to a rolling reference year, and it's a, it's a two-year gap. So for example, this year, the reference year is 2020. And next year in 23, the reference year will be 21. Next year, 24, the reference year is 22, and so on and so forth. 26, reference year is 24. And risk adjustment on a ACO's population is capped at 3% relative to that reference year. So it's 3% a year relative to that rolling reference year. And that's how CMS sort of puts a, you know, upside downside guardrail on risk adjustment increases and decreases. Importantly, the other component, the other guardrail that CMS has implemented is this coding intensity factor, which is applied after the cap, but it's applied as a multiplier relative to the national reference population, which is effectively the national Medicare population. And it's tailored in such a way that this multiplier ensures that the change in normalized risk scores of all participating uh, ACOs in this program, that the normal change in the normalized risk score is effectively zero from year to year. So it is a bit of a zero-sum game between various ACOs in that your risk score is capped at 3%, but your sort of ability to move your risk score to move up or down is 
relative to what other ACOs are doing in terms of their risk score. And this is just CMS's way of basically making sure that the ACO risk score population doesn't outpace the overall Medicare risk score population. That's the lever, the guardrail that CMS has really implemented here to ensure that there's not a sort of an over or undue focus on, on risk adjustment coding in the ACO model or in the, uh, the, the DC and now ACO reach model. So the reach methodology changes effectively keep those guardrails in place. The one change is that the reference year beginning in 2024 will be static. So it's going to be a 2022 reference year beginning in 2024, and that means that 2024, 2025, and 2026 will have a 3% increase cap relative to one year, 2022. Whereas in the old DC model, or the current DC model that's changing soon, it was a rolling reference here. So you had 3% in 24 relative to 22, 3% in 25 relative to 23. They've now capped those back three years, 24 through 26, uh, relative to one reference year in 22. Importantly, that's really the HCC coding component of the risk score. And CMS does allow, and this ties back to their focus on really wanting to incentivize providers to engage in historically underserved communities, the demographic risk score is allowed to grow sort of outside of that 3% cap. And the example given by CMS is that, for example, if your demographic risk score was 1% year to year, then that 3% cap effectively moves to a 4% upside cap and a 2% downside cap. So that's the way they've sort of allowed the demographic risk score to impact the sort of risk score cap and guardrails that they, they put in place. But I think the existing structure effectively protected against undue sort of focus on risk adjustment in the program in line with CMS's goals. And this additional sort of tweak that the REACH model has made in the out years, 24 through 26, wiring into a static reference here. I think really just advances that safeguard. So certainly the the risk adjustment structure here that CMS has in place and has tweaked going into 23, I think more than effectively accomplishes his CMS goal of, of not wanting risk adjustment to really be the sole focus of this program and making sure that in order to succeed, you really do need effective value-based care and population health strategies that are going to drive outcomes not purely through, you know, risk assessments, but really through, you know, improved health outcomes, you know, reduced admissions, uh, you know, better clinical care coordination, the things that CMS is really focused on. So let's keep talking about improving outcomes. You know, the industry moved to value-based care more than two decades ago with an intent to improve quality while containing costs, but we've seen its impact on racial health disparities has been limited. And we've certainly seen this in the last year that CMS is looking to incorporate health equity into value-based care by re-engineering pay-for-performance models to include health equity as a key financial measure for success. Over time, it's certainly within reason to expect that all ACOs will be required to conduct disparities impact assessments and health equity reports and monitor whether institution-level policies are proactively reducing health disparities. In the meantime, however, the ACO REACH model is building towards this level of equity reporting and sophistication by requiring that participants collect and report demographic data for their beneficiaries and will encourage collection and reporting of SDOH data. How should ACOs be preparing their population health reporting infrastructure to accommodate the additional requirement to collect demographic data? 
when you think this additional reporting requirement counts towards a 10% bonus opportunity in the total quality score with no downward adjustment at this time, should ACOs be planning to make significant investments to operationalize improved reporting equity so they're best positioned for the more onerous equity reporting requirements in the future? Yeah, so one of the other updates, I think, going into the ACO reach model is is the requirement for DCEs or ACOs to collect demographic information on all beneficiaries. That's really the requirement that CMS has feathered in that I think goes to the question you're asking. And, you know, here CMS is clearly driving the expectation for ACOs to track and monitor the impact of social determinants of health and access disparities. And, and if you think about it, there's all kinds of things that successful ACOs do today in terms of kind of analytics, right? Track admissions, preventative screenings, track adherence, and all, all sorts of clinical measures to measure outcomes and access. And here, CMS is making clear that health equity data and analysis needs to be an important part of all of that tracking and assessment and wants those analytics to be incorporated into how ACOs think about delivering better health outcomes to include those measures that capture things like social barriers to health, right? Access to healthcare. How difficult is it for, for beneficiaries to actually see a provider and remain adherent um, to their to their treatment plan for reasons that you know may not be purely clinical? And so it's it's hard to say with this re- requirement to collect demographic data. And, and you're correct, CMS has put a a bonus on it, meaning that, um, you know, under the existing quality program, which I think most listeners are aware of, but right, CMS withholds a portion of the benchmark uh, and and forces you to earn it back uh, based on certain quality measures. And this year it's 5%, but, you know, in the ACO reach models, I think we mentioned earlier, uh, that quality withhold is going from 5% to 2%, but still need to earn back that quality. Um, based on quality measures. And for this year, it's ACR and unplanned admissions for patients with chronic conditions. But I, I bring that up because what CMS is doing is is by collecting this demographic data, by meeting this demographic data collection requirement, they give you a 10% sort of bonus ticket you can use on that quality withhold. So you can't, you can't earn more than 100% of your quality, but you can use this collection of demographic data and checking that box to get a 10% ticket that you can sort of cash in on earning back the quality withhold. And it's hard to say exactly what organizations should be prepared to do as we really don't have the detailed guidance on what CMS is expecting. I mean, they've they've sort of put this expectation out that there will be a demographic data collection component. And we do expect ACOs will need to build out some sort of uh, uh, scalable process for this data collection, possibly with some beneficiary engagement mechanisms attached to encourage, right, the completion of or the submission of data from beneficiaries. Because one thing CMS has made clear is that on one hand, there's an expectation for ACOs to go collect this information. But on the other hand, uh, there's going to be no, you know, requirement for beneficiaries or providers to require beneficiaries to collect this information. So I think we need to see what the additional guidance from CMS looks like. But absolutely expect there will need to be processes, not only from ACOs, but from participating providers to try to collect accurate demographic information and capture barriers to accessing healthcare. Well, gentlemen, I wanted to pivot our conversation and talk about the ACO reach model in relation to beneficiary enhancements, incentives, and protections. Rick, I thought this might be a good question for you. And let me kind of explain to our listeners what all of that is about. So basically, one of the responsibilities for CMMI is to test payment 
and delivery models to enable organizations, as we know, to provide higher quality, more efficient, more coordinated care. But you do that through service enhancements and patient incentives, or at least there's a, a catalyzing effect that takes place with those particular levers in place. And while piloting many of these models, CMMI wants to ensure that beneficiaries are basically engaged with, with those levers, but they're also protected from any of the negative impacts that may be related to some of those more experimental type aspects of the models. And this has been a factor that several stakeholders have expressed concerns about specifically with regard to GPDC. And while I won't even attempt to outline the full exhaustive list of the beneficiary enhancements and incentives that are built into the ACO REACH model, I'd like to at the very least outline a few of them. You know, in ACO REACH, you have seven of these different enhancements that are available, which you can select from, and they include things like the three-day SNF rule waiver, telehealth, post-discharge home visits, care management home visits. And on the patient incentive side, there's three types of incentives that REACH ACOs can offer to align beneficiaries that do carry over from GPDC. And those are things like in-kind incentives, cost-sharing support for Part B services, and a reward program for chronic disease management. So Rick, can you provide a brief overview of these enhancements and incentives and also speak to some of the protections that have been put in place to safeguard from the negative impacts? And are these enhancements and incentives and ACO reach an important design element for these ACO participants to capitalize on as they get into the model? Yeah, and allow me to address the second question first. It is absolutely important to capitalize on this. I think folks forget, as, as we've all realized, that this is open access Medicare, and patients can go wherever they want. There are no penalties for going on a network. The incentives for beneficiaries and providers to drive high-value care and outcomes is reliant on the tools the program offers to drive the intended value. So maximizing use through evaluation of your current competencies and partnering for gap areas will allow organizations to utilize those incentives to coordinate the network better, identify areas that are harmful to patients and offer unnecessary services or extended stays in a high cost setting and instead drive better high quality outcomes. So please, please do not underestimate the value points this program has created via these incentives and enhancements that are more evolved than MSSP and any prior programs to that. So yes, like, can you provide a brief over the enhancements incentives? I'll, I'll do my best to be brief. Just to cover just the basics here, the enhancements are optional waivers. So of all these, the ones that you just mentioned, Eric, the enhancements are available under ACR REACH are the same as under GPDC, except for the nurse practitioner services benefit enhancements we'll go over in a second. All these enhancements apply to both professional and global tracks, except for concurrent care for beneficiaries for the hospice benefit, which is limited only to global track ACOs. So the seven that you mentioned, I'll briefly go through. First one, three-day SNF waiver benefit. It's essentially beneficiaries meeting CMS criteria do not need a three-day inpatient stay prior to admission to a SNF. Those familiar with this one, this is an enhancement that's prominent in MSSP downside tracks. But if you look at the current participant for numbers, this was 81% utilized among current DCE participants. It's the highest of all the enhancements. Seemingly current DCEs feel confident in their ability to utilize this enhancement to coordinate with their high-performing SNF preferred provider network, which is great to see. The second one is telehealth benefit enhancements. So this is, allows Durham and ophthalmology services, which would normally be covered 
with synchronous telehealth to be done asynchronously. It waives the rural geographic component of originating site requirements to the beneficiary's home. But however, there has been discussion among the DCE community and now ACR Reach that this has been a low benefit waiver given the COVID waivers for telehealth have been, have been available the last couple of years now, not permanent, is somewhat more favorable than maintaining this benefit. Hence probably why just a little over half are implementing this enhancement. Post-discharge home visit enhancement, it allows auxiliary staff to perform home visits post-discharge under general supervision rather than direct supervision. This had a high utilization at 70% utilized among current DC participants. I'll go through the other two and then I'll uh, provide some implications. Care management home visits benefit enhancement. This waives the requirement for direct supervision to allow payment for certain home visits furnished eligible beneficiaries proactively in advance of potential hospitalization. Likewise, this is highly utilized at 67% of current DC participants. And last of the, the home health related ones is the home health homebound waiver benefit enhancement. This allows home visits for patients with multiple chronic conditions. And this current rules only allow home visits for beneficiaries with functional limitations. This was less of the three uh, in terms of utilization, but still a hefty 61% in terms of current DC participants. So just commenting on the last three home health related ones, I guess the amount of participation across that ranging from 60 to high 70s shows that DCs are confident that they can optimize use of home health and coordinating care in a post-acute setting, which is really great because this program's use of effective post-acute strategies and implementation is a really important component. And then the, the last legacy DCE enhancement is concurrent care for beneficiaries that elect the Medicare hospice benefit enhancement, which essentially allows beneficiaries who have opted for hospice care to still receive curative conventional care. However, as I mentioned, it's only available to global track ACOs, but this had the lowest utilization at 40% among current DC participants. However, I expect this to grow in participation over the years as DCs develop an effective hospice palliative care program to incorporate into their options. Given end-of-life care is, is very expensive uh, and doesn't have a lot of alternatives to managing along effective, high-quality, high-touch alternatives. The newest one is the Nurse Practitioner Services Benefit Enhancement. It allows for five services to be delivered by nurse practitioners, increasing the flexibility of care delivery. And those include hospice care certification, certification of need for diabetic shoes, certification of cardiac rehab care, a plan of cardiac rehab, the certification of plan of care for home infusion therapy, and the ability to have referrals for medication, medical nutrition therapy. Just one point of note, while addition to the new nurse practitioner of services benefit enhancement will be useful to all beneficiaries, CMS specifically called out and anticipates this will aid disproportionately underserved populations in seeking care, which I agree on. On the other side of the coin, the incentives, which were carried over from GPDC, the goal of these incentives is to get paint beneficiaries more involved in managing their own health. While the enhances are really dedicated to focusing on providing their right hooks and levers for providers, this is really dedicated to improving those hooks and incentives for beneficiaries to seek out highly coordinated care. So the, the three types of incentives in REACH ACOs, such as that you mentioned, Eric, are in-kind incentives or monetary incentives, uh, such as vouchers for over-the-counter medications, wellness program measures, meal programs, transportation. The second is cost-sharing programs for Part B services, where ACOs reimburse participant and preferred providers for co-pays or co-insurance not collected from a beneficiary. And this service is intended to reduce the financial barriers to obtain needed treatment. So getting that access to care for 
beneficiaries that are price sensitive and uh, eliminating the price sensitivity to seek high value care opportunities, such as getting PCP visits and going as much as you'd want to achieve the appropriate connection point with your primary care physician is, uh, has an exceptional return on investment. And then the third and final is the Chronic Disease Management World Program, which offers ACOs the ability to provide gift cards up to $75 to beneficiaries who participate in the Chronic Disease Management Program. And that was utilized roughly 62% of the population among current DC participants, whereas under the cost sharing for Part B services, that was roughly 58% used among current DC participants. So thanks for the opportunity to cover that. Let's jump to the application period for the ACO REACH model, which is open as of March 7th, 2022, and will continue through April 22nd. Applicants will be notified of acceptance in June 2022 and must sign and return the participation agreement by late December 2022. And the first performance year will begin on January 1, 2023, with an optional implementation period running from August 1 through December 31 of 2022. The ACO REACH program will last for four performance years, ending on December 31, 2026. Can you start us off by breaking down the application time and the next steps for our listeners and provide guidance to those interested in applying for participation in the ACO REACH model? And Joe, what are the implications for current DCEs in the GPDC program? So the application deadline is coming up quickly. So it already opened for those as of the recording of today's podcast, and it will continue through April 22nd of this year. So applicants will be notified of acceptance in June 2022 and must sign and return the participation agreement by late December. And all these dates are forthcoming, forthcoming but they're uh, assumed, other than the fact that we know the application is due April 22nd at the time of this reporting. So for participants beginning in 2023, it will not require a letter of intent and providers for purposes of the 2023 application, provider list must be submitted in anticipation of the start of the performance year and that date will be confirmed shortly. The first performance year will begin January 1st, 2023 with an optional implementation period running from August 1st through December 31st, 2022. And those that are familiar with prior application periods under direct contracting, the implementation period was opportunities in a no-risk scenario for providers to begin conducting voluntary alignment activities in anticipation of growing their minimum required beneficiary account for participation in the performance year, and also opportunity to really explore the market effectively. So you roughly have a four-year, four-month period, but that processing will be once you are accepted under the main performance year application. So consider that as an option as you build towards the performance here. So the key with this fast approaching application deadline is to maintain optionality. And I feel like that's been the, the strategy for the last several years on even next gen comparing to MSSP. So, I mean, there are options with current DCs to deploy and partner with folks that are just considering DC. But also give your organization options to maintain its own ACR reach in the event that this is the best option for you as an important consideration. Applications are expected to be under high scrutiny, especially under the ACO reach changes. And please don't expect it to be a rubber stamp of admission to the program. Therefore, please begin your application development now uh, or yesterday, as some people would say. Joe? Yeah, thanks, Rick. In terms of, and you touched on this a little bit, the impact on existing DCEs. Effectively, as you said, uh, existing DCE organizations 
can move into or continue with, I should say, the DC model as it becomes the ACO reach model or transitions into the ACO reach model in 23. And the two requirements CMS has really put out there is a, a strong compliance track record. And there is no structured guidance on exactly what that is, but CMS is conducting or has recently issued audit requests for written arrangements and for voluntary alignment processes for current DCEs. They are issuing those now. Many have already received them. There's an audit period for the next several weeks to comply with that. So it's CMS most likely looking at the outcome of those types of audits and you know any other compliance issues that have come up. But the first requirement is really a strong compliance track record. And then secondly, satisfying the governance update, which is really this, this requirement to have 75% of participating providers represented on the board. And to additionally make sure that you've got a Medicare beneficiary and consumer advocate represented on the board. So for those ACOs that are currently in the market that are provider-led, provider-partnered, really should be a seamless is not the right word, but should be a pretty effective transition from to continue into the ACO reach model by meeting those governance requirements and then obviously checking the box on a compliance. Well, Joe and Rick, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. I mean, I think this is one of the most outstanding, informed, and sophisticated conversations on ACO Reach that's out there right now. And it's a great service, I think, for us to partner together to get this important information out there. I mean, I, I truly think, you know, and as of today's conversation, it's reaffirmed my belief that this is really a renewed opportunity for organizations to continue on in their value journey in preparation for what I think many think, and I know you you would agree that the future is really going to be in full risk. I thought as we finish up our conversation today, Joe, I wanted to ask you if you could provide some parting thoughts on how organizations should be planning for this future and risk and, and how ACO reach plays into that strategy. And then lastly, Rick, I thought you could provide some information to those organizations that are advancing in value-based payment. I mean, how can they find out more about Lumeris and how you're supporting organizations like theirs? Yeah, certainly. Look, I, I think we're all on this podcast together because we all sort of collectively agree that, you know, value-based care, and that's sort of a, you know, pretty broad bucket, but but the concept of value-based care is is really just about managing to better better outcomes, better health outcomes, better patient satisfaction, better access, you know, improved physician satisfaction. And the outcome of all of those components is better health ultimately for beneficiaries, right? Reduced unnecessary admissions, better adherence, better care coordination, reduced duplicative tests, you know, as opposed to a model where we're just focused on volume of services. And I know I'm probably articulating a point that is, is well made out here that we all sort of collectively agree on from the proponents of value-based care. But what, what this model really does is, number one, it, you know, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, it really re-anchors you know, CMS's commitment to that vision and an understanding that value-based care does need to be, if not the central, a core pillar of the future of delivering healthcare, particularly within the Medicare population, because it, it does lead to not only better health outcomes, but it helps manage the affordability, the overall affordability of the program as well. And so what organizations, if, if you're looking, you know, far out into your long-term planning and you believe this curve is coming and you see the need to prepare for it but many times the you know the challenge can be 
gaining and driving mindshare in really complex you know, health system organizations where you've got a really wide variety of provider engagement. You've got physician leaders that are proponents of value-based care. You've got um, likely physician leaders out there that are you know, reluctant to take this step. And so what this program can really do is, is help leverage this model to advance and drive mindshare around value-based care throughout organizations. And as Rick talked about earlier with the benchmarking methodologies, the, the nice thing about this program is it provides levers really across a wide spectrum. On the risk spectrum, you can, you can take a professional track, which is lower risk. And from a capitation standpoint, you can take just primary care capitation and focus on primary care. And you can go all the way across the spectrum to global risk and total cost of care and advanced uh, payment option models where you're engaging specialists and non-primary care physicians to help deliver this care coordination and compensating them in creative ways that incentivize better health outcomes. And so this program really provides a spectrum that, that you don't necessarily need to anchor to year one either, right? You can start on sort of the, the, the simpler sort of end of the spectrum and advance through it over the next three to four years. And you can use this as a driving point throughout your system and throughout your organization to really drive the mind share and the muscle memory and the care coordination activities and the use of analytics and thinking about population health and outcomes as opposed to volume of services and use it to drive that mind share throughout your organization so that you're better prepared to meet this curve of value-based care and pay for performance and greater risk arrangements that I think we all collectively think is only going to grow, certainly as we as we move towards 2030 and into the next decade. So it can really be used to help physician systems not only perform on future CMMI models, but risk-shared contracts and value-based contracts across all their populations. Rick? Well said, Joe. And just to touch on uh, what they can learn more about Lumeris and how we're supporting organizations like yours. Lumeris work with providers to support the growth and economics of their risk-based population and with high quality and impact to their customers. So Lumeris is a host of resources that we deploy to potential partners, including an MPI level analysis to determine the economic opportunity to participate in ACO reach. This is where many of our partners start as they consider their options for the coming performance year. Likewise, we have a host of tools and discussion points on all value-based programs on our website at lumeris.com. But please reach out to either of us with any of your questions at rgoddard.lumeris.com and jsatorius at lumeris.com. We really appreciate your time, Daniel and, and Eric, and uh, we look forward to continued partnership. It's been a great pleasure being with you both today. And for our listeners out there, if you want to learn more about ACO Reach, definitely access the newly released intelligence brief that came out today as of the release of this podcast. It can be accessed at accountablecarelc.org. Thanks so much, gentlemen. Thank you.